Deuteronomy 32, if you have a Bible, if you need a Bible, there's some there on the chairs there around you. If you're using those Bibles from the chairs, you're either going to page 135, or if the Bible has a flame on it, page 175. 135 or 175. We're going to pick up in verse 28 and then uh, go through most of the rest of the chapter. We've got three sermons left in Deuteronomy, and then we'll take a, a, a week break on the 22nd and that from, from Deuteronomy. There'll still be church and there'll be preaching and stuff like that. It just won't be in Deuteronomy. And then on the 29th, I realized how that came out. On the 29th, then we'll start the book of Matthew, the gospel of Matthew. All right, so Deuteronomy 32. Now, as we've been going through the book of Deuteronomy, um, for me personally, I was sharing this with someone this week. For me personally, it's caught me off guard. It's been far richer than I ever imagined it would be. The study of it has taken me far deeper than I ever thought I would go and has enriched my relationship with the Lord in more intimate ways than I ever would have imagined from the book of Deuteronomy. There are, there are things that, that I have come into uh, understanding with the book of Deuteronomy and, and to the whole of Scripture that unless we had gone through the book of Deuteronomy, I don't know that I would have come to an understanding of them or seen them in, in such a clear way. And, and it, it occurred to me this week, you know, the psalmist in Psalm 1, he talks about blessed is a man who doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked and uh, stand in the seat of scoffers. And, and he goes through this list. But then when he contrasts this person who is wicked, he says, but, but he, he delights in the Lord, the law of the Lord. And that's how most of our translations translate it. He delights in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. And I, I've read that for years and I thought, how boring I'm serious though, right? And, 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 and I would read that and I was like, why in the world would you meditate on God's law and find it a delight? Because when I hear law, I think rules and regulations, right? And, and, and what we've learned through Deuteronomy is that word law, that most of our translations translate law, is the word Torah. And Torah is far more than just law. It's instruction, it includes narrative of who God is and his history and of how he deals with his people and it, 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 it's about how God reveals himself to his people so that then his people know who he is and how to live in light of who he is. And so as I've grown in my understanding of all that the Torah includes, now I can understand more fully why the psalmist would say his delight is in the Torah of the Lord of Yahweh, because on that Torah, he meditates day and night, because in it is life. In it is the revealing of God. In it is God revealing himself to his people so that his people then know how to live in a relationship with him. And there is the delight. But when I just think about law, and I think it's just rules and regulations detached from the grace of God revealing himself, well, yeah, it's boring. And then maybe I don't see the purpose, but when I see this is how God has revealed himself, he has not kept himself distant or hidden, but he's drawn near to his people, and it's his very grace that is revealed in the Torah. Then I can say, how blessed is the man who, who meditates on it day and night. So I, I hope for some of you that that's been the case for you as well, um, that it's been um, challenging to you, it's been enriching to you. I've heard that from, from a few of you, and so I'm grateful for that. This morning as we finish Deuteronomy 32, we're in the middle of this song that Moses is writing. And uh, last week I explained to you that the way Deuteronomy is constructed, it's a, it's a, it's a treaty format, a suzerain vassal treaty format, which means there's a suzerain, which is a ruler, king maybe, and a vassal, that person who's being ruled over. And, and this format of Deuteronomy, we can see in other 
writings around the same time. This was a common format. It was a common treaty format where a ruler would then communicate to those he's ruling over, here's who I am, here's what you can expect from me, and here's what I expect of you. Here's what can happen if you follow my instructions, the, the, the blessings, the protection, the things that you can expect from me. But here's the things that you can expect if you don't follow the instructions and the agreement of this treaty. And so we see that structure here. With the song then, what we, what we talked about last week was at the end of these treaties was typically a song meant to be a, a summary of the treaty itself. This is what people would memorize, put in their mouth so that they can recite it and know it. Because, you know, Deuteronomy, as we've been going through, we, we see it and we see 34 chapters. Those chapters weren't there, of course, when Moses wrote it, but it gives you an idea of how long it is. That's a lot to remember. Right? That's a lot to kind of keep track of. And so the song was, was what was intended to kind of keep, keep track of the high points of the treaty. Right? And so we got halfway through this song, and what we saw last week in this song was, was Moses, through this song, is rehearsing the history of God and how he has brought about the people of Israel. How he has formed them from nothing how he brought them out of a rebellious group of people from the Tower of Babel, and how all the people of the world who he created who were rejecting him, he consigned over, he, he gave them over to be ruled over by other spiritual beings, right, sons of God, but for himself, for, for Yahweh himself, he brought to himself the people of Israel, and he formed them from one man, Abram, to whom he made promises, what we then saw was that these people that God gave birth to, the people of Israel, they rebelled against them after experiencing the prosperity of God. After experiencing the, the blessings and, the, and, the, and the, the health and the peace that they were going to be rebelling against God. And, and, and so the way Moses put it is they became fat, but then they rejected the one from whom they were made fat, whom they were thriving, right? And so, so the Lord talked about how he was going to bring nations to, to rule over his people. And that's kind of where we left off. As we pick it up this week, here's what we're going to see. Fearing Yahweh leads to life. Now, I've been putting this more and more frequently by way of instruction and to get you used to it. This is God's name. This is God's name. It's personal. Personal. Right? It's, it's more personal than God. It's even more personal than Lord. It's his name. It's how he revealed himself. Now, when, when we do this, Y-H-W-H, that's our English transliteration of the, the Hebrew letters, Yod, He, Vav, He. We don't know how it's pronounced with certainty. I've got to be clear on that. We don't know how it's pronounced with certainty because when the Hebrew scriptures were written, there were no vowels. There was no pointing to, to help us know how to vocalize them. That came about later. And so the most common way we end up pronouncing this and where translations choose to leave this in, the most common way they, they translate that is Yahweh. But just for your education, I want you to know there's other ways that you might hear people pronounce it, and they're not necessarily wrong. So another common way you might hear it pronounced is Yehovah or even Yahuwah. And then a shortened form of it would be Yah. But all of those are capturing how God revealed to Moses that day at the burning bush. Right? Who should I tell them has sent me, Moses said. And, and, then, and then our English translations say, and God said to him, I am who I am. Because God's name, Yahweh, Yehovah, Yahuwah, however you want to pronounce that, right? Yahweh, it's a verb. It's a present tense verb. 
And it, and it and encapsulates so much of God's character. He's not the God of I was or I will, but I am. Present tense. He's present with us always, right? And so he reveals himself to, to him that way. So I'm putting his name in there because also that distinguishes him from any other God, little g. Right, which is easy for us. So one of the things I, I discovered real quickly in some of the worlds I'm in, some of the circles I'm in, outside of church, but also inside of church, is that we can say God and we cannot mean the same thing. And you've experienced this too. I, I, in conversations, you might have said, well, I, I believe in God, and someone else goes, I believe in God too. And then when you take stock of each other's lives, you're going, well, we don't believe in the same God because we're living very different lives. Right? God's not God. The word God's not personal. It's our English word that, that oftentimes is, is what we use. But I'm trying to be very intentional here because we're talking about a very specific God. The one creator God besides whom there is no other God. Yahweh. Yehovah. Right? So fearing him, that God, that's important. It's fearing him and him alone. It's fearing him and him alone that leads to life. There's no other one no other little G God, no other person that in fearing them, and we'll unpack that, but there's no other one that in fearing them leads to life. But in fearing Yahweh, that leads to life. And so we're going to unpack that as we go through the rest of this song, starting in verse 28. And we're going to look at what, what it looks like for fearing Yahweh to lead to life and unpack some of what that life is. And so the first one we're going to see is fearing Yahweh leads to understanding. It leads to understanding. And so if you want to have a greater clarity, a greater understanding about what's going on around you, it starts with fearing Yahweh. If you want to have a greater understanding of what is of God and what is not, it starts with fearing him. Right? It, it, in, the, in the Proverbs chapter 1, it says, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. And the word Lord there is Yahweh. So very specifically, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of Yahweh. You want to have a clear understanding? You want to have a clearer picture of what's taking place around you? Why things are taking place around you? What's going on with the nations? What's going on across the world on macro levels? And then in your own world on micro levels? It starts with fearing him, and that leads to having an understanding. Let me show you. Verse 28 through 31. 28 through 31. For they are a nation void of counsel, and there is no understanding in them. If they were wise, they would understand this. They would discern their latter end. How could one have chased a thousand and two have put ten thousand to flight unless their rock had sold them? And the Lord had given them up. For their rock is not as our rock. Our enemies are by themselves. So what's, what's been said right before this, in, in, in verse 27, and you can look with me there, but he had been talking about these nations who he was going to raise up and they're going to come against the people of Israel as judgment for them breaking the covenant. But, but what, what Yahweh says there is, but in fear of those nations taking credit... For overcoming God's people, Israel, he was not going to destroy them completely because he didn't want them taking credit. So, so that's what we're picking up here is these other nations who would be used by, the, by God as instruments in his hand. Think about nations like Babylon. Think about nations like Assyria uh, who, would, who would be raised up 
and who would come against the people of God and then would lead them out uh, of their land. And this was God's judgment on his people as they were breaking his covenant. They were rebelling against him. He says he doesn't want those people of Babylon and those people of Assyria taking credit and saying, see, we overcame the people of Yahweh. Because what that would mean to them is our God, Molech, Kamash, or Baal, or whoever they worshiped, our God is greater than Yahweh. That's not going to happen, right? So they're not going to get to take credit for this. And so speaking of these nations that would try to take credit, he says, for they, that's the they here. These nations, the, they are a nation void of counsel. The ones who try to take credit for that which God alone does. They are devoid of counsel and there's no understanding in them. See, they look at their circumstances. They look at their situation. They look at what they're able to accomplish. And then they say, we did that. Or our God, little G, did that. And our God, little G, is greater than their God. And so they lack understanding. They, they can't see clearly. Their perspective is skewed, right? They, they're, 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 their perspective is off in that they don't have a proper view of the one true God, the creator God, and then themselves. Instead, they, like, like the enemy of God, Satan, have elevated themselves to a higher position so that now they look at themselves through a lens and they see themselves as greater than the creator God. They lack Understanding. You want to see someone who lacks understanding. Psalm 14 says the fool says in his heart, there is no God. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. You want to see someone who lacks understanding. It's the person who doesn't properly or rightly understand that which God alone does and accomplishes, but instead gives credit to something else that's been created or they take it for themselves. That's the person who lacks understanding. They don't see clearly. And everything that they do and everything that they will, they will interpret will be interpreted through that lens that lacks understanding. Leaders of the world, leaders of cities and towns and on councils, people in government positions, people in CEO positions, people in maid service positions or janitorial positions. It doesn't matter. If you lack understanding, your perspective will be skewed. There's a nation that's void of counsel. There is no understanding in them. If they were wise, they would understand this, and they would discern their latter end. People who lack understanding, nations who lack understanding, fail to see that they are living in rebellion against God, the one true God, Yahweh. When they worship other gods... They are in rebellion against the creator God. And they fail to see because they lack understanding that the path that they are on leads to their end, their destruction. They fail to see that the path that they are on, their rebellion against Yahweh, will lead to their destruction. Instead, they boast in their, in their own strength, they boast in their own might, and they can't see it. That's what he's saying. They fail to see that this in the end, because what we find out, is even though Yahweh would raise up the people of Babylon or Assyria, and he uses them and their wickedness to judge his people, he then will come back around and judge Babylon and Assyria, the very people he raised up. Why? Because they were already wicked in rebellion against God, and then in their wickedness, they're, they're acting out against the people of God, and they will be held account. But they fail to see the very reason they were raised up to overcome the people of Israel was because 
the God of Israel raised them up, and their end is coming. How could one, and so he asked this question, how could one have chased a thousand and two have put thousand to flight unless their rock had sold them up? And so the idea here is the very reason the people of God, Israel, get handed over to another nation is not because these other nations were, more, were, were, were greater than, than Yahweh. That, their God was greater than Israel's God. It's because Israel's God, their rock, gave them up. He, he stepped back so that his people would not experience his protection. They had broken covenant with him. They had rebelled against him. And so with the rebellion and the breaking of covenant came the curses that guard that covenant, right? The blessings that guarded that covenant was you'll be at peace. Your enemies will not overcome you. You'll have general relative health, physically speaking. You'll, you'll have, um, uh, your, your livestock will produce and multiply. You'll have grain and crops coming from the land. Uh, the, your, your wives will, will bear children and they will multiply. And all of this will be the blessing of God as you keep covenant with him. But when you rebel against them, then you instead get the curses that guard the covenant, which will be there will be nations that rise up and they will overcome you. It's because God was enacting the curses of the covenant. He was just being faithful to the covenant that he had made and that his people had entered into with him that they're overcome. It's not because the, the God of, of Babylon or the God of Assyria was greater than the God of Israel. It's because the very God of Israel said, this is what my people want. This is what they have earned. And he gives them up. For their rock, speaking of these other nations, is not as our rock, our enemies are by themselves. That's the perspective. You might have another God, little G, that you worship. You, you might go and set your, your things at the altar of another God, and, and maybe even alongside, you might try to do it alongside the one true God, and, and you think, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to worship this, I'm going to be a part of this organization, and I'm going to make covenants and oaths with this organization, and I'm going to be faithful to, to the one true God, and you can't do that. You can't do that because faithful allegiance to the one true God is faithful allegiance to him and him alone. And so when you put your, your things and you lay your life down at the, the altar of another rock, another God, little g, you need to understand God's perspective on that. You're by yourself. In comparison to when Yahweh, the one true God, is your rock, you're by yourself. You, you might think that you have a strength and maybe you even experience things that, that are supernatural. You experience a strength or, or prosperity that is supernatural, but it's not from the one true God. And we're gonna see that in just a moment. You can experience prosperity. You might even experience some measure of health or healing. You might even experience um, a, some level of strength and power, but it's gonna come at a cost if that's not coming from the one true God. You will experience the cost. So fearing Yahweh, where we started is fearing Yahweh leads to understanding. You wanna have a clear understanding, it starts with fearing him. When we talk about fearing him, um, don't think simply reverence. It, it, is in, it is reverence, but that's too sanitized. Yes. It's too sanitized. Reverence, yes. Fear, he can crush you. He is your creator, and he can send you back to dust 
in a moment. From dust we were made and from dust we will return. He holds all power. There is none who can rival him. There is none who can compete with him. There is nothing that you or I can bring against him that will overcome him. There is nothing that anyone else can bring against him that will overcome him. And he will have victory of his enemies. And those who rebel against him will experience his justice. Fear him, rightly fear him. And the very God whom we're told to fear, don't miss this, the very God whom we're told to fear is the very God who invites us, if we are in his son, Jesus, to call him father. To have that one as your father to have that one who knows you and whom you can know in intimate ways. There's no God like him. It leads to understanding. Here's verse 32 as we we wrap this part of it up. For their vine comes, remember I talked about their prosperity? Their vine comes from the vine of Sodom and from the fields of Gomorrah. If you know anything about Sodom and Gomorrah in biblical history, you know that's not a good comparison. Right? So if your vines are coming from Sodom and Gomorrah, your grapes are grapes of poison, their clusters are bitter, their wine is the poison of serpents and the cruel venom of ass, what Moses is pointing out is the prosperity that these other nations are experiencing, their prosperity is linked to the same kinds of wickedness that were found in Sodom and Gomorrah. Listen, people can prosper. People can experience physical, material wealth, People can even uh, go from sickness to a measure of health. They can go to a measure of strength, even a supernatural strength. They can have a measure of success as you and I see it, and none of that can be from Yahweh. It can be from something else. And it comes at a cost. Because the measure of success, the, the type of prosperity that you're experiencing, even the, some, maybe the, some of the physical healing that you got because you went to a, to a, you know, a, a psychic or a medium or a, a shaman or a witch doctor or something like that, you might experience a measure of healing, and yet it's the type of prosperity that's rooted with Sodom and Gomorrah. It's wickedness. It's not, it's not rooted in the one true God. It's not rooted in the creator of all things. And so that's how he describes these nations. They have power. They have wealth and prosperity. But it's the kind that's, that's like that of Sodom and Gomorrah. So pause for a moment and think about the, 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 the tapestry of the world right now. Think about the ruling powers of the world. It doesn't matter who's most, most prosperous. Look at the root. Look where that prosperity comes from. Look how that, that prosperity is being used. Look at your own country. And look at the prosperity. Don't be deceived. Do not be deceived by wealth, prosperity, material power, or strength. Because when it comes to God and God alone, the one creator God, those things mean nothing to him. And he can crush and raise up as he wills. There's understanding with fearing him. Then we go to the next section. We see fearing Yahweh leads to compassion from him. Or you might see mercy. Fearing Yahweh leads to compassion from Yahweh. Leads to compassion from Yahweh. Let's look at verse 34. Verse 34. Is not this laid up in store with me? Sealed up in my treasuries, this is Yahweh speaking. Is this not laid up in store with me, sealed up in my treasuries? Vengeance is mine and recompense, for the time with their foot shall slip. 
For the day of their calamity is at hand, and their doom comes swiftly. For the Lord will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone and there is none remaining, bond or free. Speaking of these nations that have risen up against Israel, God says of them, vengeance is mine. Vengeance for God is different than you and I. You and I can't take vengeance. Scriptures tell us vengeance belongs to the Lord. If you and I try to take vengeance, we're acting in revenge, and we are then in rebellion against the instruction of God, which tells us to love our enemies. Vengeance, though, when God acts upon it, is one, protecting the people of his covenant, acting on behalf of those who are in covenant with him so that he is protecting them against his enemies. Okay, there's one part. But vengeance is also exercising justice against those who break covenant with him. It has two sides to it, right? It's protecting those who are in covenant and who are keeping covenant with him against the enemies, but it's also then vengeance against those who break covenant with him. Fear him. Fear him, right? But it leads to compassion when we fear him, right? Because if I'm fearing him, then that means I'm keeping covenant with him. I'm living in faithful obedience to him. And he says, vengeance is mine, recompense for the time when their foot shall slip. There may be people in your life. There may be on the world scare, there's nations. There may be opposition to the things of God and it may appear like they are winning. You read through the Psalms, you read through the Proverbs and you see some of those writers expressing these things. Why do the wicked prosper? Why, why are my enemies seeming to overcome me? Right? It may appear that way, but when we read things like this in the Song of Moses, we read that it may appear that way, but there's going to be a time where their foot will slip. There's going to be a time where God will exercise his vengeance. Paul picks up on this in Romans chapter 15. Um, and then another chapter 15 in, in the Revelation, the last book of your Bible, chapter 15. After the beast has been overcome. Some people will give, give themselves over to worshiping of the beast. Others will, will overcome. They might be martyred, but they're going to overcome. They're going to be remaining faithful to worshiping Yahweh and Yahweh alone. And in chapter 15 of Revelation, we're told that as part of the victory, there's going to be a song, the song of Moses. The song of Moses. Because those who have overcome, they've persevered to the end and they've, they've not worshipped the beast. They've not laid down their worship at his feet. They're going to see that vengeance is mine, says the Lord. He will take vengeance on those who are his enemy. He will overcome them because there's none that can stand before him. And so verse 36, for the Lord will vindicate his people. He's going to plead their case. He's going he's to speak on their behalf and then act on their behalf. And then he's going to have compassion on his servants. So even though God is raising up people to, to come in and exercise his judgment on his own people because they've broken covenant, there's going to be a day where he will extend his compassion once again. Listen. If you're in a covenant relationship with God through faith in the Messiah, Jesus, you have become God's child, son or daughter. God disciplines those whom he loves. You might be going through something and you might be experiencing some things in your life and your temptation might be automatically to go to the enemy is coming against me, but I would say give pause and take, take stock of your life. Are you living in faithful obedience to the Lord, the one true God? 
If you are, then maybe your statement is accurate. But if you're living in rebellion, then it may not even be the enemy needing to come against you because Yahweh himself is disciplining you as his son or his daughter whom he loves. And unless you fear him and have that understanding to be able to see it, you won't know how to respond. You're going to be blessing the enemies of God while cursing God himself. And so he will vindicate his people and have compassion on his servants when he sees that their power is gone and there is none remaining bond or free. Let's keep moving on. Then he will say, verse 37, where are their gods? See, this is his perspective. These other nations who, who he's ultimately gonna, he's gonna respond to and take care of, he says, where are their gods? Little g, where are they? Where could they be when Yahweh came and took vengeance on them? They couldn't stand it. It reminds me of, of the story of Elijah at, at Mount Carmel with all the prophets of Baal, hundreds of them, right? And he says, come in and offer a sacrifice to your God and, and I'll offer to my God and whichever one receives the offering, then we'll know that's the one true God. And they do all this, this dancing and all of these, these rituals and nothing happens. And, and Elijah ta- uh, taunts them, where's your God? The, the most comical part of that story is he even says, is he going aside? Which is a way of saying, is he relieving himself? Maybe he's too busy. He's relieving himself. That's a fun part of the story there. But he, he goes on, where are their gods? The rock in which they took refuge. The one who they, they offered sacrifices to. So he goes on, he says, the very gods they worship, little g, could not stand for them when they came against Yahweh. Verse 39, see now that even I am he and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. I put this in yellow because I want you to see this. It's a very different picture than you and I typically would have of God. And yet God himself says, I kill, I make alive. When he's talking about his covenant people and the things that they've experienced, he's making sure that, that all the world knows no other nation did this. No other God, little g, did this. I did this. I did this because my people broke covenant with me. I'm keeping my covenant. I'm being faithful to my people to keep covenant. Sometimes that faithfulness is the blessings of the covenant, and other times that faithfulness is the curses that guard the covenant. And yet all of it reminds his people he has not left them. Because if they're experiencing the curses that guard the covenant, they're still in the covenant. And if they will but understand and they turn from their wicked ways and turn back to the one true God, what will they experience? The blessings of the covenant. They'll experience compassion. Verse 40, I lift up my hand to heaven and I swear as I live forever, if I sharpen my flashing sword and my hand takes hold on judgment, I will take vengeance on my adversaries and will repay those who hate me. I will make my arrows drunk with blood and my sword shall devour flesh with the blood of the slain and the captives from the long-haired heads of the enemy. What a perspective God has on those who are in rebellion against him. Those who worship things that were created rather than the creator. We are so sanitized in our view. We are so soft on our understanding of sin, which is rebellion against the high king of heaven, that we, we read something like this and it offends us. And we never stop and think, Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. How we have offended him. 
when I rebel against the high king of heaven, the creator, and I worship, I lay my life down, I lay my things down at the feet of created things, whether that be a person, whether that be myself, whether that be the God of atheism. That's not an oxymoron. The God, little g, of atheism. If you renounce God and you say there is no God, you are following a spirit, an evil spirit that has led you to believe there is no God. Okay? If I lay my feet down at that and I, and I lay my things down and I worship them, I am offending, I'm falling short of the very glory of God, the creator. There is nothing higher. There is no greater being that I can give glory to than the creator, Yahweh. And when I give glory to myself, then I am, I am offending his glory because I'm created he created me. When I give glory to another person, a ruler, a king, a leader, a boss, a parent, if I give inappropriate glory, I'm not saying don't honor those that are, that are worthy of honor, but when I give inappropriate glory and my life and my decisions start to revolve around those, that, that person or those people. My affections are now being revolving around those people so that all of myself is being given to him. I'm loving that person or persons with all of my heart and all of my soul and all of my might instead of the one to whom it is said, love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. When I give that to someone else, I'm giving his glory to someone else. I'm offending him. That's a high treasonous offense worthy of death. Paul says in Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. What we earn because of our sin, our rebellion against God, falling short of his glory is death. But the next part of that verse but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Fearing Yahweh leads to mer- uh, compassion from Yahweh. Next we see fearing Yahweh leads to worship. When I fear him, I worship him. When I fear him, I worship him. If I am found worshiping anyone or anything else, you can clearly know I'm not fearing him. Because if I'm fearing him, I'm living in faithful obedience to him, I'm rightly understanding him as he's revealed himself, then I'm worshiping him. Verse 43, the last verse of the song. Rejoice with him, O heavens. Bow down to him, all gods. For he avenges the blood of his children and takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and cleanses his people's land. One note about your version, depending on what version you have. Some of you only have four lines. This is the ESV. Some of them have eight lines. We've talked about this kind of thing before. This comes down to a text critical issue, which means this. The the primary scripture or the primary manuscript that we get our Old Testament translations from is called the Masoretic Text. It's it's an entire document translated and put in Hebrew, written by a group of people called the Masoretes. It was somewhere in the, I don't know, don't quote me on this, but like 600, 700, 800 AD, okay? That's when that came about. That's where we get most of our our copy. That's the old, one of the, the, the whole... Uh, fullest surviving copies that we have. But as we continue to discover other manuscripts, we have older ones. I mentioned to you last week, at some point before the time of Jesus, okay, remember the Masoretic text? 
600, 700, 800, somewhere in that range, AD, but the, uh, before the time of Jesus, which would be BC, right? We, we have a Greek translation of the Old Testament. It's called the Septuagint. It would have been very well known. It would have been a widely used in Jesus's time. That's older than the Masoretic text. And then we've discovered some copies or, or pieces of scrolls with the Dead Sea Scrolls, which were found in 1940s, um, but they date far be before Jesus's time. So when we find things like that, sometimes they shed light on things for us. This is just one of those spots. It's going to be why you have maybe four lines or eight lines. Because in the Masoretic text, the one that was written after Christ, it has four lines. But in the Dead Sea Scroll fragments and in the Septuagint, we find eight lines. And so it depends on what your English translation decides to follow. And you should have a note in your English translation. It'll say something like LXX and DSS. LXX means 70. It's the Septuagint, DSS, Dead Sea Scrolls. MT would be Masoretic text. That's why there's a difference. Some of you that just went over your heads, that's okay. Others of you, you'll eat that up. All right? But here's what we find out. Everybody will worship Yahweh. Rejoice with him, O heavens. And look at this next line. Bow down to him, all gods. You know what it says in Hebrew? Bow down to him, all sons of God. Do you remember seeing earlier in Deuteronomy chapter 32 how he divided the nations according to the number of the sons of God? Those very beings who led these other nations astray, they are too going to bow down to Yahweh and Yahweh alone. Every spiritual being, every physical being, all of creation will bow down and worship him and him alone. For he avenges, he avenges the blood of his children. He takes vengeance on his adversaries. He repays those who hate him and he cleanses his people's land. Fearing Yahweh leads to worship of Yahweh. And then lastly, fearing Yahweh leads to life. So my last point is also my bottom line. Fearing Yahweh leads to life. And what we see there is Moses, after he recites this song, these are the words he says to the people, starting in verse 44. Moses came and recited all the words of the song in the hearing of the people, he and Joshua, the son of Nun. And when Moses had finished speaking to all these words to all Israel, he said to them, take to heart all the words by which I am writing you today, or warning you today, that you may command them to your children, let me read that again. Take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of this law, this Torah. For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. And by this word you shall live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. Fearing Yahweh leads to life. Moses understood it. And he was, he was instructing the people, you've got to pass this on to the next generation. You've got to pass this on and teach them not only to know it, but to do it. Shema, right? Shema, O Israel, Deuteronomy 6. Shema, O Israel. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. Yahweh our God is one. You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. That's the instruction. Pass it on. Here's what it looks like to live that out. That's the Torah. Moses says, that's life. If you learn to fear Yahweh and fear him alone, you will have life and you'll experience life. 
So fearing Yahweh leads to life. Now listen, if we fear him, like I said, it means we, we understand him as he's revealed himself. And then we respond by living in faithful allegiance, faithful obedience to him. How has God revealed himself? The very God who created. He has revealed himself to his people. He has come near to his people. Adam and Eve rebelled, right? And so then in that rebellion, there's been a separation. And yet Yahweh has not abandoned his people. Instead, he said, there will come a seed of the woman. And she, and, and, and she will crush the seed of the serpent, even though the seed of the serpent bruises his heel. We're told by the time we get to, to what we call our New Testament that, that uh, John chapter one, we're told that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God and there's nothing that has been made that didn't come through this word and then we're told in John 1:14 that that word became flesh and he dwelled. He made his tabernacle among us. We're told the word is Jesus. Paul the apostle tells us Jesus is the invisible God made visible. That in Jesus, all the fullness of deity dwells in his body. God has revealed himself and he has come near to his people. Jesus came that he might live in perfect obedience to the Father. That he might then die a death, a sacrificial death on behalf of guilty people, even though he himself was innocent. He became God's Passover lamb. The very lamb who, who for centuries the, the people had been putting the blood of the lamb over the door so that the wrath of God would pass over them. And Jesus now becomes that once for all Passover lamb so that those who are now covered by the blood of this Passover lamb, the wrath of God because of our sin, because remember the wages of sin is death. But because the Passover lamb's blood covers us, the wrath of God passes over us because it was instead poured out on the lamb we are then able to then be removed from the wrath of God, taken from the domain of darkness. 1 John 5, 19 says, we belong to God, speaking of believers in Christ, but the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. You either belong to God or you are under the hand of the evil one. There is no in-between. You either belong to the kingdom of God, the kingdom of light, or you are in the domain of darkness. Fearing God leads to understanding. When we come by faith to Christ, we are then removed from the domain of darkness and we are transferred into the kingdom of his beloved son. God has come near to his people and he extends his mercy, his compassion to those who fear him. What does it look like to fear him? I understand who he is and how he's revealed himself. I understand that he has come in the person of the Messiah, Jesus. Jesus himself claimed, made claims to be Yahweh. He said, before Abraham was, I am I and the Father are one. No one can snatch you from my Father's hand. He made claims that he is God in the flesh. He is the invisible God being revealed. When I fear him, it means I come to him by faith. I entrust myself to what he has done on my behalf. His sacrifice is what I need. I contribute nothing, nothing. I bring nothing it's all of what he has done for me in Christ that is necessary for my sins to be remitted, to be forgiven, that I might then come to know God and be known by him. That's what it looks like to fear God. And then it looks like living in faithful obedience as a response to who he is and what he's done.
Father, in this room today, there is a mixture of people and you know every single one what's going on in their lives and their hearts and their minds. Let your spirit now come and bring us understanding to your word. If there's been anything I've taught this morning that's wrong and not accurate, then block our ears from it. Guide me in the truth that we might be corrected and that we might come into alignment with what's true. But where there has been truth, let those seeds come and fall on fertile soil this morning. Take hardened hearts this morning and and remove blinders and veils that they might see how you have revealed yourself and see you for who you are, that they might see the rebellion that they've been living in for what it is, that they might repent and turn from that and come to you by faith in Jesus. For those who are believers in Jesus but they've not been living in faithful obedience, God, show us, guide us in the truth that we might then turn back to living in faithful obedience to you. If we've allowed things to compete in our lives for your affection, for authority in our lives that belong solely to you, may we repent of those things this morning that we might not submit or surrender ourselves to anything or anyone that is unworthy or undeserving. And you alone, the creator God, Yahweh, are deserving. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, Yahweh our God is one. You shall love the Lord your God. You shall love Yahweh your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. If we're not doing that, show us that we might repent and start to love you with all of our might. Let your spirit then produce in us the fruit of the spirit. Here in just a moment, we'll dismiss, but I want to invite our prayer team members, anybody who's available to pray with folks this morning, they'll be up front here as we dismiss if you uh, want prayer about anything, regardless of what it is, something the sermon has stirred up, um, understanding, you want to talk more about what it means to trust in Christ. Um, If you have sicknesses or diseases or things going on in your life that you would like them to pray for, they're prepared for all of that, okay? All of that. And so you guys can prepare to make your way forward now. Now may Yahweh bless you and keep you. May Yahweh make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May Yahweh lift up his face upon you and give you peace. Amen. See you next week.